Здравствуйте. Привет. Okay, that was hello and hi in Russian. <laughs> because we have a Russian case today and we did not want to attempt to butcher how to say hi in <laughs> Russian. So hey everyone, this is Janessa. And this is Kathy. And this is the Pathological Podcast with Karate Moves, which you guys can't see. Um, and today we are talking about the Diet Loft Pass story. Before we get into that, do we have any news? Anything new? I don't think so. No. The world's just descending into chaos, but that's fine. What else is new? What else is new? Everything is fine. We are launching our new podcast Thursday of this upcoming week, so I guess it would be tomorrow by the time this podcast airs. Um, so make sure you guys head over to the Sisters Nerdy podcast, and then you can listen to our first episode where we talk about fun stuff. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Um, okay, then let's dive in. We'll preface by saying... We are not Russian, and we are going to butcher these names, and we tried. We tried Google Translate, but we, we're going to just get it wrong. So <laughs> so many apologies before we start this episode, but we will try our best uh, to not butcher them. Don't come at us. But don't come at us, because we will butcher them. Okay, so Diet Loft Pass. This one is kind of in line with, like, Panama Girls as far as interest level and one of the things that made me like want to start a podcast and research this kind of thing because I thought that this was such an interesting story and so hopefully you guys can message us and comment and write in like what your ideas and thoughts and comments are on this story because I'd love to hear what you guys think but without further ado let's dive in. In 1959 a group of 10 people went out on a skiing expedition in the northern Urals in Sverdlovsk Sverdlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. Again, many apologies. So Igor Dyatlov was a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and he was the leader of the group. And the group consisted of nine others, most of whom, of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. So the group was comprised of eight men and two women, all of whom were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience as well. So upon their return from this expedition, their grade three certification would be complete. And at that time, grade three certification was the highest available like certification that you could get. And it required that candidates uh, traverse 300 kilometers or 190 miles through the snow, which sounds just terrible. No, thank you. No, pass. So the route that the group would take was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission. The goal of the expedition was to reach the mountain range called Gora Otorten. On January 23rd, 1959, the Dietloff group was issued their route book, and they took off for their journey on that same day. So now let's talk about the members of, of the group. We'll kind of break them up and talk about each one individually. The party consisted of eight men and two women, as I mentioned before, and Igor was the leader. He was a fifth-year radio engineering student and one of the most experienced athletes in the group. There was also Zen... Zenaida, no, Zenaida Komogorova. She was 22, and uh, she was from the same uh, facility or same school as Igor. Yuri Doroshenko, 21, was studying power economics. Alexander Kolovatov, 24, was studying nuclear physics. There was another person by the same name of Yuri, and his last name was Krivonoshenko. He was 23. Uh, Rustem, what did we say, Slobodin? Also 23, and then Nicholas 
Ibo Brignol, 23, all of whom were engineering students. There was Lee, oh god damn it, there was Lyudmila Dubanina, 20, and Yuri Yudin, 22, who were studying economics. Um, and then this one looks like Simon ish. Semyon Zolotoryov was 38 and a sports instructor who had fought in World War II. So many members of the group wrote home as well as kept like personal di- diaries of their journey. So Lyudmila, yeah, Lyudmila Tupanina. She was the youngest skier, and she had a reputation as a stern, somewhat humorless member of the um, of a group that was called the Young Communists. It was Koms- Komsomol. Excerpts from her diary show she was enjoying the trip and the company, and she actually wrote, uh, quote, In the train, we all sang songs accompanied by a mandolin. We sang and sang, and no one even noticed how we slipped into a discussion about love and kisses in particular. Which I thought that was kind of cute because she's like the youngest of the group. And she like mentions that they talk about kissing and stuff. I don't know. Just thought that was cute. So uh, Zinaida Komogrova was outgoing, energetic, and one of the university's most popular students. She wrote to her family from the city of Serov, which was a stop in route for the group. She writes, we are going camping, 10 of us, and it's a great bunch of people. I have all the warm clothes I need, so don't worry about me. How are you? And she's writing letters back to her family. She also asked about her father's health, her mother's work, and urged her younger sisters to study harder at school. Zinaida, along with the group's leader, Igor, had sent their last letters home from the post office in a small settlement further along the route called Vizhe. The group spent the night there on January 25th before getting a lift by truck to a logging base called the 41st Settlement. Okay, so let's get into the the actual expedition part now. So the group arrived by train um, at a place called Evdel, which is a town at the center of the northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast in the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. Then they took a truck to Vizhai, which was a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. So the last kind of group of people that they could have met on their way. On January 27th, they began their trek toward Gora Otorten, Um, which was kind of the mountain base that they were trying to trek to so that they could get the miles that they needed and then they'd turn around and come back. So the group hired a horse-drawn sled to carry their supplies for the last 15 miles to the abandoned North 2 mining settlement. The going was tough and the strain became too much for one of the members in the group. Yuri Yudin cut his trip short when pain in his knees and back became too much to bear. Zinaida writes in her diary, quote, Yura, which Yura and Yuri are the same. It seems to be like a nickname version of the same name. So she writes, Yura is leaving us today. His sciatic nerves have flared up again and he has decided to go home. Such a pity. We distributed his load in our backpacks. Although the student was not feeling well and sad to leave, his choice to turn back ultimately saved his life, which we'll get into further on. So after Yuri Yudin left the group, the students continued toward their goal of Ortorten. The translation of the mountain's name literally means don't go there in the language of the indigenous people who have inhabited the region for hundreds of years, and they're called the Mansai, or Mansi. The group skied along the nearby Ospia River before the final ascent. Zinaida wrote in her diary, There is sun in the morning. Now it is very cold. All day long we have followed the river. At night we'll camp on the Mansi Trail. I burned my mittens and Yuri's jacket at the campfire. He cursed me a lot. (laughs) So Yuri Doroshenko and Zinaida were a couple prior to this trip, but he ended up breaking things off with her before they left. 
She had fallen in love with him during a previous expedition when he chased off a brown bear with a geologist's hammer. (laughs) That was fucking badass. So, as the next days of their expedition carried out, different diary entries tell us the weather definitely slowed them down significantly. So, temperatures on average were negative 13 degrees Celsius uh, during the day and negative 26 degrees Celsius at night. No, thank you. No, thank you. On January 31st, a diary entry written, I believe, by Dubanina, because the website that I found that had all these diary entries listed did do a good job of breaking them up sometimes, and then sometimes it didn't, like, specify whose is whose. But I believe this is from uh, Dubanina, and she writes, The wind is strong. Snow begins to fall. Heavy clouds drop in temperature. You can feel the altitude. It is impossible to walk on the river. It is not completely frozen. There is ice and water under the snow. We have to go back on the bank of the river. There was another diary entry for this day. Uh, Again, it doesn't specify who wrote it, but they wrote, Weather today is a bit worse. Walking is especially hard today. We can't see the trail. Have to grope our way through at times. Can't do more than one mile per hour. Trying out new ways to clear the path. We're exhausted, but starting to set up for the night. Firewood is scarce, mostly damp furs. Dinner's in the tent, nice and warm. So you can, like, picture them going through this, like, huge, not like a snowstorm, but just very, very cold. They're in Siberia, so super cold. All this snow. And the weather's so bad that they can literally move a mile per hour. So on that day, January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they left food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. They set it up on a platform that was high above, a gra- above the ground. They set up camp and made their dinner and then turned in for the night. February 1st. The group leaves and starts to move through the pass that they had camped in. They start out fairly late and walk for only two and a half miles the whole day due to the inclement weather. Their plan was to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. And we'll include a picture of like the map of where they were and where they were trying to get to for the next day. However, because of the worsening weather, snowstorms, and decreased visibility, they lost their direction and accidentally deviated west. When they realized their mistake, the group decided just to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain for the night. It should also be noted that had they moved a little bit further downhill to a forested area, they would have had some sort of shelter and protection from the weather, but instead they kind of set up in a big open area at the base of the mountain. In his diary, one of the Yuris wrote, they believed that Dietlov probably didn't want to lose that the, the altitude they had gained for the day because the weather was so bad. Either that or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. They set a tent around 5 p.m. on a slope of the uh, Kolatsiaki, oh which is 10 miles from the Mount um, Otorten, which is where they were trying to go. They eat dinner between 6 and 7 p.m., and then this would be their last evening alive. So before leaving, the group leader, Dietlov, had agreed that he would send a telegram to the sports club at the school as soon as the group returned to that Vizhai, which was that um, little settlement. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dietloff had told uh, Yuri Yudin before he left the group that they expected that he expected it might take longer just because of the weather. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate concern because it was common for delays with such expeditions. On February 20th, relatives started to get a little bit antsy and concerned, and they demanded that a rescue operation be put together. So the Ural Polytechnic Institute Sports Club called a meeting 
the other expedition groups in the region were informed that there might be a problem with the Dyatlov group. So on February 21st, more teams from the university were dispatched to help with the search. Moscow was made aware of the incident and soon also sent a few to help with the search. Later, the army and police forces became involved and planes, helicopters uh, were also ordered to join the rescue operation. So that brings us to February 26th. So remember, they were supposed to be sending letters back by February 12th that they were finished with their expedition. So this is almost two weeks later. On February 26th, searchers found the abandoned and badly damaged tent on the Kolatsyak Hill. Mikhail Shervin, the student who found the tent, said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. So let's talk about the condition the tent was in and then what they actually found in the tent. So again, the tent's completely banded, abandoned, covered in snow, and I will say they don't make note of whether the tent was slashed on both sides or if it was just the one. And when they take pictures of the tent for like the official investigation, they only take pictures of one side. They don't like mention the other one. So the tent was pretty large and it was made larger by actually sewing together two four-person tents so that they could fit everybody in. The campsite consisted of a pad of flattened snow and the tent was stretched between two poles that had ropes going across the, the top of it to make sure the tent wouldn't sag in in the middle. Inside the tent were nine backpacks filled with just various personal items, jackets, raincoats, nine pairs of shoes, men's pants, three pairs of boots, warm fur coats, socks, hats, ski caps, utensils, buckets, a stove, an axe, blankets, and food. Also found were personal diaries, cameras, and accessories for the cameras. So obviously when they left the tent, they left in a hurry and then they weren't able to get back to the tent for whatever reason to get their supplies again. The tent also had various cuts on at least one side. Unfortunately, like I mentioned, when the investigators took pictures of the tent, um, when it was moved to the Evedale Department of Eternal when it was moved to the Evedale Department of Internal Affairs to be photographed, they only photographed one side of the tent and made no mention of the other side in their report. So I would assume that means that the other side was intact with no noticeable damage, but again, they don't make note of that in their report. So for reasons that are still unknown with any type of certainty, the sides of the tent that were slashed in various sizes and at various heights, the prevailing opinion at first was that some vandals surprised the sleeping hikers and attacked them by cutting into the tent while they slept. That opinion, however, changed when a woman who was called in to mend one of the investigators' uniforms took one look at the tent and claimed with confidence that the cuts were actually made from the inside. This changed the course of the investigation. Forensic analysis confirmed that the cuts were indeed formed from the inside. The official report says, quote, The nature and form of all cuts suggest that they were formed by contact with the canvas inside of the tent with a blade of some weapon presumed to be a knife. The report continues, We managed to identify footprints of eight or nine people starting from the tent and going about one kilometer down the slope, and then they were lost. One person was in boots, the others were only in socks, or they were barefoot. Again, in the snow, super strange. The conclusion at the end of examining everything at the campsite was that the group had left without other outer clothes, hats, gloves, and shoes. Only an exceptionally serious threat might motivate a group of nine young, physically fit people to urgently leave their shelter in the winter evening in a completely uninhabited forest. 
So on February 27th, at a distance of one and a half kilometers away from the tent, the first two bodies of the hikers were found. The investigation notes say, while looking carefully around the area, searcher Mikhail Shervin, the same one who found the tent, noticed something dark close to a cedar tree. There was a flat area next to the cedar, and on this were the remains of a fire. About two or three meters from the fire, they found Yuri Doroshenko, frozen without his clothes and with his hand burned. A little bit off to the side, they found Yuri Krivonoshenko in the same state. Under Doroshenko's body were three or four cedar branches of about the same thickness. So around the tent, they didn't do a good job of like preserving footprints or looking at different footprints that might have been around it because they didn't think that they'd find them dead. So they also didn't do a good job of like photographing around it. I will, I didn't mention it here, but I also read that they found in the snow a flashlight and it was like sticking straight up and it still worked. And at this point it had been 14 days, um, well longer since they had passed away they were able to determine so probably almost a month and the flashlight was like still in working condition so just odd did you also read that where their two bodies were found the branches were broken suggests that one of them tried to climb up to see where the tent was yeah so they so we'll and we'll get into their each individual person's wounds as we go through this but yeah, they did. They were able to determine that it looked like one or both of them climbed up in the tree based on broken branches. And even kind of based on their injuries, they might have fallen out of the tree or had to like jump out of the tree. But yeah, very odd. So let's talk about what they are wearing and how they were found. So Yuri Doroshenko is who we'll talk about first. So Doroshenko was the tallest member of the group. His complexion upon, upon being found was a brown-purple color. He was wearing a sleeveless cotton undershirt, short sleeve button-up shirt, shorts and swimming trunks, and then blue cotton underpants, which were badly ripped on the front of the right side with one large hole, and then there was another hole on the inside of the left side. He was wearing mismatching pair of wool socks, and the socks on the left foot were burned. He was not wearing any shoes, uh, liver mortis spots, which I don't know. Do you know what those are? Liver mortis spots. It's like old people spots, right? Yeah. So it's like basically where like blood or capillaries or whatever will pool. So for old people, it's just like when they hit stuff, it happens. But for the dead, it means like their body was in a position where blood stopped circulating. So it pooled in wherever it was. So the liver mortar spots were located at the back of the neck, the torso, and the extremities, but they were not consistent with the position that his body was found in. So this suggests that the body was moved sometime after the blood stopped circulating. So somebody moved his body after he died. In his hair, they found particles of moss and pine needles. Again, that definitely suggests that he was up in the tree. And the hair was actually burned on the right side of his head. Ear, nose, and lips were covered with blood. Swollen upper lip was dark, suggesting hemorrhage. Right cheek soft tissue was covered with gray foam, and gray liquid was coming from his open mouth. So the most apparent cause of that would be pulmonary edema. He had bruising on his shoulder, right armpit, and right forearm. The soft tissues of both hands and fingertips were especially dark purple, and all his fingers and toes had been severely frostbitten. So they said even if they had found him alive or if he had been able to stay alive, they would have, he would have lost all his fingers and toes. So interestingly, Doroshenko had a small amount of urine noted during his autopsy. 
The volume was smaller than what you would expect in a normal case of hypothermia caused death. In his case, his body was still making an effort to fight the freezing at the time of his death. The foamy gray fluid that was found on the right cheek and in his mouth started speculations that before death, someone or something was pressing heavily on his chest cavity. So again, that might be consistent with him crawling up into a tree and then either jumping out or being thrown out or something like that, falling out maybe. However, when they concluded his cause of death for the autopsy, they just listed hypothermia and they said death occurred six to eight hours after his last meal. Very strange. The burn marks are the things that get me because I feel like unless he died and somehow like rolled into the fire or something that they had burning. But that would be weird because they were on different parts of his body. Weird things. So okay. unless maybe someone else moved him. And... They do think that somebody came upon uh, Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko after they died and took their clothes. And that's why they were not wearing much clothing. Um, because they did find certain articles of clothing that belonged to them on some of the other victims. So that could be. But again, the burn marks are really weird. Because these guys are experienced. They've started fires before. And it's like weird places, like the side of his head. And for uh, Krivonoshenko, I believe he had burn marks like on his legs and stuff. So I was thinking, I wonder if he like tried to warm up his fingers or toes in the fire, but because they were so frostbitten, he didn't feel it. And then he started burning them. But we'll get into we'll get into it and then we can talk about that. Uh, Krivonoshenko's body was discovered underneath that cedar tree. He was dressed in an undershirt, long sleeve shirt, swimming pants, long underpants, and a torn sock on his left foot. He was not wearing any other type of footwear. He had bruises on his forehead, bleeding on the right temporal and occipital region of his head, and the tip of his nose was missing with no traces of blood. So this could be caused by a wild animal that had just come over and like bit off the tip of his nose since there was no blood and he was already probably frozen by the time he died. Um, And he was found face up. Some of the victim's skin from his right hand was found in his mouth. Back of his right hand was swollen. Fingers were frostbitten. The middle section of his fingers had four to five cutaneous wounds with hard edges and charred surfaces. A two centimeter piece of skin was detached from the back of his hand and kind of just hanging there. He had multiple abrasions on his chest, wrist, and butt. On his inner left thigh, he had three linear skin lesions and three cutaneous wounds. He had edema on the left leg and foot and a burn area on the entire outer surface of his leg. Patches of skin were peeled back on the left foot and a second toe charred to a dark brown color. The amount of urine that was found in him during his autopsy was three times the amount that they found in Doroshenko. Again, they listed the cause of death as hypothermia. A theory about how both of these Yuris may have gotten their injuries was that they were hiding in the tree from something or for some unknown reason. Perhaps Krivonoshenko was biting his hand to keep it from freezing up or to stifle a scream. I imagine some of the burn marks, like I said, could be them trying to warm up body parts and not feeling them and then burning them. It's also worth noting that the clothing seems to be mixed up among the victims, like I mentioned. So investigators believe that at some point, a group of the victims that were alive found Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko, took their clothing off to keep themselves warm. Or they murdered them and took or their clothes. Or they murdered them and took their clothes. Those are the first two bodies that were found. Kathy's going to go over the next two bodies found and where they were. Um, So the third body that was found, which was on the same day as the Yuri's, was Igor Dyatlov, the group's leader. 
Oh crap, I didn't prepare. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> LOL. LOL. Igor was found on February 27th, 1959, and he was found 300 meters from the cedar tree, with his face turned towards the tent, which was Ooh, very odd. Very odd and ominous He was found with his hands clenched into fists, and they were folded on top of his chest. His jacket was also unbuttoned, which is weird, because, you know, they're out in the cold trying to stay warm, but I also think if his fingers were too cold, maybe they locked up so he couldn't button it. Okay. He was 175 centimeters, which calculates to 5'7". I had to look. Ah, that's the same as me. (laughs) Now I know how tall I am in centimeters. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thanks, Russia. (laughs) And he was a bluish red when found. He had on a long sleeve red cotton shirt, the unbuttoned fur sleeveless vest, a blue sweater, and they found four pills of strapticide inside one of the pockets, and that was, like, an inflammatory for wounds. Interesting. So he had to have gotten those before they left then. Um, he also had a blue sleeveless cotton singlet and ski pants over his regular pants. He was not wearing shoes. He had on one cotton sock and one wool sock. Weird. He had minor abrasions to his forehead, his upper eyelid, and on his left cheek. He had brownish-red abrasions above his left eyebrow. He had bruised knees, which I think maybe suggests he fell. Yeah, at some point. Both ankles had abrasions with hemorrhaging to the underlying tissue. He had a single incision in his right tibia. Scratches on his right forearm and his palm. The metacarpophalangeal joints on his right hand suggest that he was in a fight. Left hand was brown purple with bruises, superficial wounds on his pointer and his pinky finger on his left hand, but there were no internal injuries and they suggested his death was by hypothermia. So I'm thinking maybe he did get into a fight over someone, maybe for their clothes. Maybe. And maybe that's why his he froze. Like, yeah, his hands kind of froze as they were if they were hurting. I wonder, too, one of the other theories, which after we get through all the injuries, um, we can talk about some of the other theories that others have come up with as well. But I wonder if one of them went crazy and started attacking them on the inside. But it still doesn't make any sense because I feel like if they were all to just start cutting out, I mean, they had an opening to the tent, so you have to imagine that Whatever was attacking them was blocking that so that they couldn't go. So if they cut their way out and then scattered out, that means that they ran barefoot like really, really far and then weren't able to turn around and get back. I don't know. It just seems really odd. (laughs) Yeah, I would think if at least one of them were to go crazy, like the other eight would be able to overpower that one person too. You would think, especially because they found all of, well, most of the weapons, but they found like the axe and the pig and all of that. So I I would suggest something from the outside, I think. I think something enough. But then why would they cut their way out of the tent? Is it the side where the zipper was on? Maybe the zipper was blocked? I think their tent was... Or maybe the zipper didn't. It got stuck. It got stuck. I will also say that they do mention that the investigators didn't make note of whether the tent was found with those flaps open or closed. And in the pictures, you can't tell. They tried in their janky 1950s way. They superimposed two pictures of the tent together to try to get the full image, and it didn't line up exactly. Um, But, well, like I said, we have, like, a cool diagram of the tent and the different slash marks, and some of them are at eye level, and some of them are, like, way above. So 
and there's multiple on one side. So you have to imagine more than one person was trying to cut out of that tent. Yikes. All right. And then I think you have another body. Was this one found the next day? Yes. And this was the Zeneda Komagorva. So Zeneda Komagorva, she was found 630 meters, which is 2,067 feet. Good job. <laughs> from the cedar tree. Her face and hands donned a purple-red coloring. She had on two hats, a long-sleeve undershirt, a sweater, a checkered shirt, and another sweater. And they did say that she was, like, the most dressed out of everybody else. Interesting. She also wore cotton sports pants, trousers, ski pants, and then three pairs of socks. Two of the pairs of socks were thin, and then the third one was, like, a wool-insulated one. Okay. She did not have on any shoes. With her, they found five rubles, which is Russian monetary currency, and a military-style protective mask. Her autopsy report showed that she had a dark red abrasion on her right frontal bone, and then there was like a pale gray area above her right eyebrow. There was a abrasion on her upper eyelids, and then a grazing on the bridge and tip of her nose. Numerous abrasions on the left cheekbone, a bruised skin on the right side of the face, so it kind of fits that maybe she was hit. Yeah. Bruised skin on the right side of the face, brownish red abrasion on the back of both hands, and then a wound with jacket edges and missing skin on the back of her right hand. She had frostbite on her fingers, and then she also had a huge red bruise in her lumbar region on the right side of her torso, which makes it look like she was hit with a baton. What? The plot, the, top report. the plot thickens. No sexual activity was found, which is important to mention because it assesses her relationship with the other men in the group. And one of the theories was escape prisoners, which if they did escape, they wouldn't, they think they wouldn't leave the two women alone. Right. But no activity was found. Which, I mean, if it's freezing outside, I doubt anyone would want to, like, take their clothes off. But <laughs> Right, right. And, like, it, and that's the part that's the most odd is you would, I mean, when these people go to sleep, it's not like they're stripping down into their pajamas. Like, it's still really, really cold up inside the tent, so they're wearing most of their clothing. Um, they didn't make note that, I, I believe it was Igor had left his jacket outside of the tent, which they thought was weird. Like, who would go take your jacket off outside of the tent and let it be in the cold before you go in? odd but the but the injuries are odd too that the, the cutaneous wounds which are just like big open wounds with irregular edges every one of them seemed to have some version of that so maybe like going through the trees that oh getting stabbed oh that's a good especially idea. with how cold it is like if their skin was trapped it might Oof. be easier to like cut open and that's a good point like as they're running through um i will say i didn't grab every single injury that was listed on the report because some of them was just like light colored bruising and I figured as you're going through an expedition you're probably going to get hit or fall or bumped into so the bruising you know in the various stages of healing that's it, like okay I could see that but the things that were very odd were like the peeled back flesh the burn marks the deeper wounds in the position that the tent was found they said they kind of ruled out an avalanche happening because the everyone had lined up their skis standing up on the outside of the tent and investigators say that if there was an avalanche, it probably would have knocked those skis over or buried them to some degree. Um, again, when they stumbled upon the tent and actually searched for them, that they, they had run away from the tent at that point for two weeks. So a lot can happen in that time. 
should also be mentioned that further down the the way the trail from where the tent was when they were following those eight or nine footsteps they did find footprints from the Mansi tribe but the Mansi also helped with their search for the people but with the Panama girls they also <laughs> helped to find those girls but there were 30 fingerprints found on the there was their article of clothing multiple so. fingerprints and they found like where they if you remember where they found the boot with the foot bone in it it was like buried under a tree very hard to find unless you know what you're looking for so maybe they did it as a deterrence away from their group to turn it away yeah I mean, the Mansi, as far as I could read, had no documentation of attacking others. It seems like they had a good working relationship with the people who would come through there. But that doesn't mean everybody feels that way in the Mansi tribe. <laughs> and I would like to say they call the mountain that they were camping at Death Mountain. A de- yeah, they're literally <laughs> camping at a place that was like, don't go here, you'll die. Like, that's the name of it. It's kind of sad, too, because if you think about it, they were able to, like, go a few more, what, meters down and camp in the forest. This might not have happened. This might not have happened if they were, if they just were able, but the weather was just so rough that they were like, let's conserve our energy. So that's going to, we're going to leave it there for part one, because part two, we're going to go over the other wounds that the other victims had when they were found, because they were all, there was, there's actually a pretty big gap from when some of the other ones were found and their wounds get even more interesting. So we'll go over some of the theories and conspiracies that are surrounding that in part two. Yay! Yay. Tune in next week for part two. Follow us over on our new podcast. What is it? The Sisters Nerdy (laughs) Podcast. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Pathological Podcast. And that will do it. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Yay! Yay. See you later. Bye! Catch you later. Catch you later. Bye!